Well, good morning once again. It is good to be with you in a different context than I usually am with leading and singing. Um, as I get the opportunity to preach this morning, and it's uh, wonderful to be here as it always is. Uh, this morning we continue to talk about love, but today we begin a shift into the love for others. But before we do, let us ask the Lord to bless our time together. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedoms that we have to freely worship you. We ask that you would be with us this morning as we open your word, that it would be pleasing to you and glorifying to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The world has a very interesting way of looking at and defining and expressing love. While on the surface we can nod our heads uh, in agreement much that is said from the world when we hear of people talk of love or we hear love songs or uh, just wellness for others. Well, maybe not so much anymore in today's standards, but if we dig a little bit deeper into the world's outlook on love, we can see that it doesn't quite match up with the biblical definition of love, and there are many inconsistencies and shortcomings that come out of it. Um, throughout the modern history, there have been movements just to show how much we should care about each other, and I'll give you an example. A very long time ago, in the year 1985, a song was released, headed up by Harry Belafonte, I think is how you pronounce his name, <laughs> and written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie as a way to provide relief for starving people in Africa. In 2010, the song was re-released and updated to provide relief for people in Haiti. The song was called We Are the World. And here are some lyrics from that song. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. There are people dying, and it's time to lend a hand to life, the greatest gift of all. We can't go on pretending day by day that someone, somewhere, soon, make a change. We're all a part of God's great big family, and the truth you know, love is all we need. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives, it's true, we'll make a better day, just you and me. And some of you are singing along in your heads, <laughs> as I spoke those. This is an enjoyable song, it's a catchy song, and it has a message that on the surface I think we can all agree to, that we should be concerned with the lives of others around us. But as Christians, we can answer the question that the world cannot, and that is the question of why. Why are we concerned with what happens to people all over the world and their well-being? Why do we care? Well, we care because we have a true understanding on the value of human life, because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. To the world, this question of why is answered in a number of different ways, and some of them give the right answer without having the right heart. In this song, we're all a part of God's great big family, can come across as such a profound lyric in today's world that it dares even mention that we are a part of God's family, and that it mentions God at all in something other than a profane way. 
But God and his connection to the value of human life is really where it comes down to. And then the chorus comes in and it kind of shatters all of our expectations for this when it says we're saving our own lives. The focus and foundation of the world's concern with human life is ultimately selfish in practice and feeling. But there is a deep desire to preserve our own lives and the lives of others that we maybe care about. But without the gospel and the Holy Spirit working, then we do not truly understand. We want to be the heroes. We want to be the ones who are recognized as generous and gracious. Over the last several months, Pastor has been directing us um, to our first and greatest priority, the love for God. God must come first. Christ must be the priority over everything and anything else. If we love father, mother, sister, brother, son or daughter more than we love Christ, we are not worthy of Him. Christ must come first. But once we have this foundation, we can begin to put into practice His standard for us to, and how we treat others and our love for them. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We'll be starting in verse 34. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for God and love for neighbor in that order. On these two, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets stand. When we think of the commandments of God, for most of us, it comes to our minds the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. And the Ten Commandments encapsulate this truth of loving God and loving neighbor. We have the first half of the commandments that focus on our love for God. Have no other gods. Do not make any idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And do not uh, forget the Sabbath day, but remember it and keep it holy. Then we have honor your father and mother, which is... I see as kind of this bridge between love God and love for others, because we do honor our Father in Heaven as God, but we also have a responsibility to honor our earthly parents as well. And then we have the second half of the commandments, which is our love for others. And this comes down to, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely, and do not covet. And everything written in the Law and the Prophets can come down and fit into these laws. And we're not talking about, when we talk about love for self, love your neighbor as you love yourself, we're not talking about this modern-day self-love movement. If you go on Instagram and you type in the hashtag self-love, you're going to get a lot of things that are going to scare you. Again, we must keep it biblical in our picture uh, a biblical picture in our mind and of what the, of terms that we use. This morning we will take a bird's eye view of this concept of our neighbor and who is our neighbor. Turn to Luke chapter 10 as we just heard, and this is a very familiar story and I was almost tempted to 
have a different reading up on the screen so it didn't give anything away, but I figured if you guys have been in church long enough, you know the ending, so it's not going to be much of a surprise for you anyway. But we're going to begin in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. Here we have one. He's called a lawyer in the ESV, but in some translations he is an expert of the law, or one who knows the Jewish law. And he is. He is seeking to test Jesus. Now, in some commentaries I read, a lot of people gave this man the benefit of the doubt, that he was not being deceiving, he was not trying to put Jesus into a corner, but yet, every time we see somebody try and test Jesus, it is usually as they are looking for a reason to arrest him, to put him to death, to humiliate him, or to prove that he is not who he said he is. And so I tend to take the position that if he's trying to test Jesus, it's not really in the most... Um, pure of heart kind of way. But he does seem to be asking an innocent question. Uh, so, uh, as we see in uh, Matthew chapter 19, we have a similar story of the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The same question is being asked. With the rich young ruler, he says, keep the commandments. With the lawyer, knowing his expertise in the law, Jesus responds, by putting the ball in his court, so to speak. What is written in the law, how do you read it? By doing this, Jesus is also revealing that he is not teaching anything new. He is not adding a new doctrine to the, or a new idea, but he is adhering strictly to God's law as it was get, given and as it was written in the time of Moses. Jesus is consistent. The lawyer answers Jesus' question with the correct answer. If you're going to give a correct answer on a theological thing, it best be to Jesus, that's the best person to give the correct answer to. But he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and mind. And then he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is not just a New Testament command. I've heard many people say that this is something Jesus added. But if you know your Bible, you'll know that this is not a new command, that it is in Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And perhaps this lawyer was in the crowd when Jesus addressed the rich young ruler and heard what the greatest commandment was and what the second greatest was. And so he was just trying to impress Jesus by re-saying or, or uh, repeating what Jesus had said, knowing that that would be the right answer, or possibly could have been because this man was a lawyer of the law of Moses. He did know what was expected of him. Either way, he answered correctly. And then Jesus says the simple, do this and you will live. The problem is that the requirement of the law was to follow it perfectly. The rich young ruler was deceived in his own mind because his response was, I have followed the commandments since childhood, only to have Jesus show him that he had in fact not. Anytime we get into that set of our mind where we think that we have it all figured out, God has a very funny and interesting way of showing us that we have not got it all figured out. The law points to something greater. 
The law is the mirror that is placed before us to show us that no matter how hard we try or any of the good things that we do, we cannot and will not ever be good enough. For if our outward actions deceive us, our heart will expose us. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. We go back to the Ten Commandments. You've heard that it was told, do not commit adultery. Well, many people can say, I've not committed adultery. But Jesus then goes to the heart of the issue, and he says, but even if you look upon somebody with lust, you have committed adultery with them in your heart. Do not commit murder. I hope most of us can probably say we have not done that. But then Jesus says, if you are even angry with your brother, you are deserving of the judgment. And time after time again, we are reminded of how short we fall compared to the standard that is set, up, set before us by God. This lawyer responds here differently than what the rich young ruler did. He does not say, I have kept all the laws. He instead asks an interesting question. Okay, who is my neighbor? This question, I believe, reveals the true heart of this man. He is self-righteous. There are a number of different opinions on this back in those days on who is my neighbor. And I would argue that it really hasn't changed much in even our culture or even in the church today. There are those who would interpret this to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And we know that that is true because we look back at Matthew chapter 5. We see that Jesus addressed this very subject. You've heard that it was told, love your, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But what I tell you is this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We continue on here in the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, excuse me, sorry, we do not yet. <laughs> we know the Pharisees were very proud and hypocritical. Many things Jesus taught, he taught, listen to their words, but do not follow their practices. For like they like to have their place of honor in the synagogues and at the feasts, and they look lowly and miserable when they fast, so you know that they are fasting. They show how generous they are with their giving by giving big bundles of gold. Everything they do is for show and for praise. This question of who is my neighbor would sometimes be interpreted as those who are part of your inner circle or your clique or whatever group you are part of. Pharisees with other Pharisees, Jews and other Jews, Gentiles and other Gentiles, or in today's world, maybe conservatives and other conservatives, liberals and other liberals, Democrats, Republicans, whatever it might be. But the words of Jesus here ring true. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor by telling this familiar story. This is one of the most abused parables that Jesus tells. It has been used to promote things like Marxism, social justice, socialism, and a number of other things that have nothing to do with this story. I've heard it said that the man was walking along the road and he was jumped by robbers. And what kind of society do we live in that we allow the robbers to jump him? Why were they so desperate that they needed to jump him? We need to better our society so that the robbers don't need to have this um, temptation to steal. And of course, I think we can all know that's not the point of the story. The moral of the story of the Good Samaritan is not just to be nice to each other, or even help the poor and downtrodden. While God commands us to care for the poor and show mercy and kindness to others, that's not the point of this story. While this parable seems pretty straightforward on the surface, 
we must remember that it is still a parable. And the parables are told for the sake of the gospel and salvation in one way or another. Remember what sparked this whole debacle. How do I attain eternal life? So now we can continue in our reading of Luke chapter 10. It says this, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The picture that Jesus paints here is a familiar one to his audience, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a very sharp and deep descent of rocky hills and curved roads on this journey um, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles and Jerusalem is roughly about 3,000 feet above sea level, and the Jericho was about 1,000 feet below sea level. And so we do have this picture of a rather steep decline. And within the mountains and the hills and the rocks that are there, there were plenty of places that robbers could hide out and wait for their next victim. Now this man in the story is presumably a Jew, a person that Jesus' audience would most likely view as their own neighbor. We're told that as he's on his way, he falls among robbers who beat him and strip him and left him half dead. We are to be left with this picture of complete and utter helplessness and hopelessness. He has nothing left. And even if he did, in the state that he was left, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because he wouldn't have been able to get anywhere where it would have mattered. The first person who comes along is a priest. He sees this man and passes by on the other side, gives him a wide berth. Why? Well, there are many ideas of this, one of them being the priests served in the temple and their duty was to offer sacrifices. And if a man was indeed dead, then the priest was not allowed to touch him or else he would be ritually defiled. And he would have to go through the specific cleansing and ritual processes for touching a dead body in order to be seen as clean again, according to the law. So many would say he's simply trying to avoid this. But if we are assuming that the priest was traveling from Jerusalem, we could conclude that his priestly duties may have been done for that time. But this is a side note. And now that could be. Except that this is a story. This is Jesus making a very clear and distinct point. And the point here is not that there were some reasons why this priest couldn't touch a dead body or show compassion to the man. The point was that he is a priest and he did nothing. A man who was supposed to represent the people of God before God showed no love for this man. If we're going to make any kind of inference of what would have been going through the priest's head, I don't think it would have been his ritual defilement, but it would have been scripture. He knew Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, love the sojourner who comes into your midst. Yet he still passed by. But Jesus, the point here is he's creating contrast between these different characters. Next, a Levite, not of the priestly line of Aaron, but one who would assist in the temple, a holy man, a well-respected man. And what does Jesus say here? He, too, passed by on the other side. So where is the contrast? Because those two seem very similar in how they act. The contrast comes 
and the next character. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. This is the climax of the story. The Jews sitting around Jesus, hearing a Samaritan coming along, things were going to get worse. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. I tried to find a picture of what this could look like in our society today, and I can think of the Huskies and the Cougars. <laughs> the Patriots and anyone who's not from New England. The Beatles and Yoko Ono. This was bad blood. And those hearing Jesus' parables knew that. If this man wasn't dead before, he was certainly dead now. The Samaritans were seen as traitors, intermarrying with the Assyrians. They were referred to as dogs and half-breeds. If you wanted to really insult a Jew, you would call them a Samaritan, as the Jews did in John chapter 8, verse 48 to Jesus. They said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Two insults at the same time. A demon-possessed Samaritan. <laughs> then we finish the verse, and it says this. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The pity the Samaritan showed to the man was not just in contrast to the actions, or lack thereof, of the first two characters. It was in contrast to the status quo. And the pity that is felt doesn't stop there but is turned into sacrificial action. This is a busy road. Someone most definitely would have come by at another time, and if the Samaritan just simply waited for somebody else, he could have said, hey, this guy's not dead, go ahead and take him, care for him, I don't want to touch him, because he's a Jew. But that's not what happened. So we'll finish the passage here now. He went up to him and bound his wound, up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of, three, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The Samaritan didn't just help this man by bandaging up his wounds or giving him oil and wine as a salve and a disinfectant, but this part I think gets overlooked, that the Samaritan truly loved this man. He loved him. He gave up his own comforts of riding on his own animal, so this would imply that he was probably walking the rest of the way while the beaten up man got to ride on the animal instead. He didn't just take the man to the inn, but he stayed with him all night, tending to him and caring for him. He then, Jesus tells us, gave up the equivalent of two days' wages for the average worker back then. Two denarii, two days' wages. To make sure that he was taken care of. And it doesn't even stop there. He makes a vow to the innkeeper. If the care for this man goes beyond that of what I have already given you, don't throw him out, continue to care for him, and I will pay the difference when I come back. And this is crazy. He just told the innkeeper that whatever he spent on this man, he would pay back. The innkeeper could have milked this 
if this was a true story. But the Samaritan just says, I'll pay it back. Just make sure he's okay. He loved this man as he loved himself. This, who is looked upon as an enemy, and filthy, and a stranger, was one who proved to be his neighbor. And Jesus very specifically chooses his words in this next part. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor for the man? Jesus takes this to a whole other level and changes the original question. It's not about who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor to those who God puts before me? It's not about how we expect people to treat us, but how do we treat others? Do we love anyone like this? Some of us might be able to claim that we've done this maybe once or twice before, but that's not good enough. It doesn't matter if you've done it a hundred times. It's not good enough. Because none of us can love everyone in this way. We do this for ourselves. This is the way we love ourselves. We preserve this for us. We want the best care, and we can provide ourselves the best care. But to give this to a stranger, to love a stranger the way that we would love ourselves, or maybe in some cases our family, depends on if you love your family. <laughs> but how about, we, how about one we call an enemy? Also notice the attitude of the lawyer when he responds to Jesus. He doesn't even call the Samaritan a Samaritan. Those words don't seem to be able to leave his mouth, but he says, the one who showed mercy. After all of this, after being shown what it means to be a neighbor to someone and who his neighbors are, he can only refer to the Samaritan as the one who showed mercy. Jesus then hearkens back to the original question of, what must I do? And says, go and do likewise. He says, go and do this to everyone. This was pure dismissal. The story would have been different if the lawyer cried out, there's no way I can love some, everybody in this way. And that would have been the correct answer. And then maybe Jesus could have showed mercy to this man and shared the gospel and he could have gone away like the man who fell on his face and beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. But we don't get to find out how this person responds. The very next part, it goes on to, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. We don't get to see the conclusion of this lawyer. Um, no one can love anybody this way all the time. We need the grace and mercy of God. Because if we were perfectly obedient to the first commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we would be able to perfectly obey the law that he has put before us to love our neighbor as ourself. William Hendrickson writes this in his commentary. It may be asked, does this answer of our Lord shed any light on the law, the law expert's original question? What must I do to inherit everlasting life? The answer would have to be, yes it does. Not as if being a good neighbor would all by itself assure salvation, but proving oneself to be a neighbor and doing this to perfection, and besides, loving God with a love that is also perfect, 
would indeed result in everlasting life. The law requires a perfect love for God and a perfect love for others. If you can do that, eternal life is surely yours. The problem, of course, is that we cannot. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean that God requires from us any less. His bar is set, and we cannot reach it. So the answer, my friends, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. His substitutionary sacrifice and his perfect obedience, what that has done for us, we could never do. If Christ only loved those who loved him, heaven would be filled with the Godhead and the angels, but not you or I, for we were all by sin enemies of God. But God showed his great love for us, my favorite verse, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And those of us who are in Christ are to reflect the image of Christ to the rest of the world, to be light and salt to our neighbors. To go back to the song, We Are the World, it says we are all part of God's great big family. And I would ask you to ponder, is this true? And you'll hear this all over today, that we're all God's children. God loves us all the same. But R.C. Sproul gives us this picture. The reality of the situation is that there are two hoods to consider now, depending on which area of Tacoma you live, the word hood might mean something else to you, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about brotherhood and neighborhood. If you are in Christ, you are a part of this brotherhood. Christ is our elder brother. We have been adopted into the family of God. Because of Christ, we have the right to be called children of God. Those who are not in Christ, those who do not call Christ Lord, are not part of this brotherhood. But they are part of this neighborhood. If the person is an image bearer of God, we are called to love them as we love ourselves. We are to reflect the image of Christ, and by our love to others, could be what God chooses to draw those who belong to him to himself. God chooses his own, and God draws his own, but God uses us as means to accomplish some of his purposes. So I would urge, if anybody here is not in this brotherhood or sisterhood of Christ, and it's just part of the neighborhood, to hear this, that you identify better with the priest and the Levite who show no love to the one in need. But those in Christ can identify with the Samaritan who looks at somebody, sees their worth, sees their value as an image bearer of God, and does what needs to be done in the glory, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in all things to give thanks. So we are once again thankful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. As we go through our lives, help us to not ask the question of who is my neighbor, but instead to be a neighbor to those who you bring before us. Father, be with us as we go from here today. Convict us of our sins. Sanctify us by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.